The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking this evening again at Exodus 13. Last week I made the mistake of giving you a seven-part outline and uh, getting through two or three of the points. So we're going to continue as we look uh, at Exodus 13, at the way that God leads us and guides us. And this is a really remarkable chapter, as it's clear that God is shaping and molding the thought process and the minds and the hearts of his people by giving them commemorations, by giving them feasts and celebrations, and also by wisely beginning their Exodus journey, their path that they're going to travel. He guides them along the way that they should go. And so in some way they are looking back and they're going to be forever looking back at what God has done. They're going to remember the Exodus. They're going to remember the Passover. They're going to remember all the plagues. They're going to look back and remember. And that, that memory, that remembrance year after year is going to shape them. It's going to, it's going to prepare them for the future. And, and concerning the future, God is going to lead them and guide them also as we have before us the next surprise from God. You're never sure what he's going to do next, but now comes a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. And so he's going to guide them and he's going to lead them along a way they have not traveled before. And so we have a beautiful picture. I think it's remarkable how in the study here, if you, if you look between the lines and begin to see, and it just comes in so beautiful with the uh, worship we've had tonight under Eric's leadership, we see the Trinity at work. We see God the Father giving commands and leading his people, setting up the Passover, setting up the Feast of Unleavened Bread, giving them regular uh, uh, ceremonies that they are to obey. He has, uh, he has chastised, he has punished, really, the Egyptians for the way they treated his firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son, and this is the way you've treated. And he's, he's therefore killing the firstborn son of the Egyptians. So this is God the Father. We also see God the Son in the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' blood shed in our place and His blood under which we stand. And so the, the wrath of God passes over us and does not come to us. What we richly deserve does not come our way because we have a substitute in Christ, the Passover Lamb. And now in this pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire we see a picture of the Holy Spirit, the Counselor the guide, the one who leads us along our way until we finally make it to the promised land. And so, you're right, Eric, we see the Trinity all over the place in Scripture. Not openly taught, but when you know what to look for, we see the activity of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, in verse 1 and 2, as we've already seen, the consecration of the firstborn. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. And we've already commented on this, and we'll just remember that the point here is that Israel deserved to die that night. We need to keep that in mind. Israel was not any different, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by that sacrificial lamb, justified by Jesus Christ. Israel, the firstborn of Israel, actually all of Israel deserve to die. We also see the, uh, just the doctrine of the consecration of the firstborn being a portion of God's sovereign rule over all things. When you give the firstborn, the first fruits, the first from every womb, in effect you're saying, God, all of it is yours. All of it is yours. The first thing that I offer, it's yours. And so also the whole 
of everything that I own. All things are yours. So we see the consecration of the firstborn. Also by way of review, verse 3 through 10, the commemoration of unleavened bread. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Abib you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be in your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. And so this is ordained by God, this commemoration, this feast, the feast of Passover and also of unleavened bread, somewhat of a twin feast. And the reason is that we tend to forget. People are forgetful. Paul says in uh, Philippians 3.1, I've been studying Philippians in preparation for my next sermon series. I'm thinking about Philippians. It says in Philippians 3.1, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he said, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. In other words, it's a, it keeps you safe to have repetition of these kinds of teachings. I actually had to kind of work hard to see where Paul had already told them to rejoice in the Lord, and he does so in chapter 2 of Philippians. But he's not done yet, is he? Because in chapter 4, he says it again. Rejoice in the Lord. And he's not done yet. He says, again I say, rejoice. Why do we need to be badgered by the word of God? Well, it's not a badgering. It's a safeguard for us. The repetition. And so also this commemoration. Year by year, they were going to remember how God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Why should they look back? That's old stuff, isn't it? Why live in the past? These are new things. Well, that's precisely why in some uh, measure we need to live in the past. Because our God never changes. And the things he's done in the past show something of his character, show something of his saving purposes. And he doesn't need to, he shouldn't need to do them again and again and again to convince us. They're written in scripture so that forever there would be a testimony to his greatness and his power. I was talking to somebody earlier, asked precisely about this. Why doesn't God do these kinds of miracles over and over and over? And my answer is because God is relying on the written word. We come and read about it and that should be sufficient for us as we read about the exodus it's enough for us to know that god who did this is still alive still at work in your life fulfilling his purposes for you and so there was a commemoration god was working in their minds he said i want there to be this reminder on your forehead and on your forearm and you're going to be looking there's going to be stuff around you up on the doorpost you're going to have physical reminders of how the law of the lord should be on your lips and even better written on your hearts. And so the commemoration of unleavened bread, as we talked about last time. He also talks about the need to train your children. When your son asks you, why are we doing this? Then you should tell him, I do this as a commemoration of what the Lord did for me and how he brought me out of slavery. And so this uh, mighty God 
the testimonies of the mighty God were to be passed on from generation to generation through faithful teaching and instruction of the children. The children are actually mentioned twice in this chapter, as we'll see. But the son is going to ask, or you're going to tell your son, you're going to tell your children what the Lord did for you. And so every year as this Passover, as this Feast of Unleavened Bread was done, there would be questions and answers given by the parents. The children would be trained. Now in verses 11 through 13, again by way of review, we see the cost of redemption. Death for the substitute. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, <clears throat> as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every, every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now here, as we said last week, is the principle of costly redemption. The fact is that we speak so freely of our salvation being free. And to us it is free. As I mentioned this morning, perish the thought that we could buy the gift of God with money. As was said to Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. We can't buy the kingdom. Neither can we buy anything that God desires to give to us. But just because we have not the resources and we are not to cheapen and diminish the gift of God with thinking that we have anything we could offer that would come in exchange. Yet at the same time, we should not think it was free because it wasn't free. It was extremely costly to Christ. It cost him his lifeblood. And so this picture of the sacrifice of the blood of the, of the lamb, redeem with the lamb every firstborn donkey, was not going to be done just one time, actually, then. We have the Passover lamb and the blood of the lamb is, is shed. But we also have this act again and again repeated. Whenever a womb is open and there's a new animal being born, then if it's a, a larger animal like a donkey or perhaps an ox or something large, you can substitute with this lamb and the lamb will take its place. And the lamb will die in the place of that, of that donkey. But if you don't do that, then break the donkey's neck. It belongs to me. And so it is, we have this principle of substitution, which is so vital in our religion, so vital in our walk with, with God. If it weren't for the principle of substitution, we would have no hope before living and a holy God. Jesus is our substitute, and his blood has been shed for us. We also have this concept of redemption, as we've already mentioned. The idea of, a, of the payment of a price to get you out of bondage or out of some kind of slavery or dangerous situation. For example, the payment of a ransom to get a kidnapped victim away from his captors. It's the idea of a payment of, the, of a price. And Jesus said uh, in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom for many. Now, we shouldn't try to figure out to whom the ransom was paid. Just the idea is that there is an expensive payment to get a people out of danger. And so God again and again speaks of Israel as a people he has redeemed out of Egypt. They're bought out of Egypt with the payment of a price. The interesting thing is the price hasn't been paid yet, has it? It has not been paid. No, it's not the blood of the lambs. Because the blood of lambs and bulls and goats can never take away sin. The price was yet to come. It would be paid at Calvary. Just like your price was paid at Calvary, so also the price of the Jews. And so this payment price was going to be made. But again and again, he speaks of his people as those whom he redeemed out of Egypt. For example, in Deuteronomy 7, 8, it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers 
that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And again in Deuteronomy 15.15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. Well, that's Old Testament language, but the same language is brought over also into the New Covenant, as we saw last time in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Peter there says, you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And so there, the redemption is not out of Egypt, but out of an empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. So if these are Jews, it's the Jewish ceremonies, the rituals, the old covenant, which could never save you. And you are redeemed from that empty way of life. If you are pagans, you are redeemed from the empty way of idolatry given to you by your father, the way that you were taught either way, an empty way of life. And Jesus came and bought you out of it. Praise God. The price was paid. And then again in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so there in one sense in Peter, we are under this empty way of life without any hope, going around without any, any possibility through our religiosity or through our pagan rituals or through our own wisdom and strength of earning favor with God. Impossible. So he redeemed us out of that. Here in Galatians 3, even worse, he says, you are under the curse of the law. You are under a curse because it is said, cursed is everyone who does not obey everything that God's written. And so we're under a curse. Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. So praise God, your salvation was not free. It's free to you, but it wasn't free. It was a, there was a great price paid. And you're going to be celebrating that price forever. Isn't that wonderful to think of what was paid for you? The value. And so we have an ethical concern here. You are not your own, says Paul. You were bought with a price and therefore glorify God in your bodies. A great price was paid for you. You were expensive. <laughs> and so he says, you're not your own. So live in a way that glorifies me. Now in verses 14 through 16, we see the constant reminder again of the Exodus. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. And so this is a constant reminder as we've already mentioned. Now, in verses 17 and 18, we see the concern of the Lord, and that is a wise path for his people. And this is marvelous and to me so encouraging that God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. I saw recently on a Free Will Baptist Church sign, it said, if God is your co-pilot, you need to change places. I like that. I thought about that for a while. I like those little provocative signs. I don't think we're going to go into a sign ministry, but that's all right. I like to read other churches' signs. And uh, if God is your co-pilot, you need to change places. It's interesting. Here, God is no co-pilot. God is strongly leading them the way they should, they should go. He's got it all worked out. He knows where they are to go. Look at verse 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country though that was shorter. 
For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. You see the wisdom of God here. God thinks about everything. I mean, absolutely everything. He doesn't just think of what it takes to get the people out of Egypt, the ten plagues and all that. He's thought about far more than that. He's thought about the exact path they should take. He knows everything. It's all been worked out. And that's why it's so grievous to God when they get to the other side of the Red Sea after he's done something they didn't ever expect him to do, namely carve a path through a sea with the water walling up on the left and the right, yet another example of God's mighty power. And they sing celebration to him. And they worship God with Miriam. And they're all celebrating. And it's not long after that that they're murmuring and complaining that there's not enough to eat or drink. How dishonoring is this to God? As though somehow his planning hasn't reached the other side of the Red Sea. He hasn't thought it through yet. How bad are we when we murmur and grumble and wonder about the future? And we're not sure where he's leading or if he knows what he's doing. Oh, he knows what he's doing. He knows. His planning has reached beyond the Red Sea and actually beyond the Jordan River and actually beyond the physical promised land all the way to heaven. He knows what he's doing and he's so wise. He's very wise in how much he puts us through at any given time. Isn't that true? The people weren't ready to face battle. Now someday they would face battle because he already told them when you go into the land presently owned by the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites who are not by nature generous people and who will not stand by and say, my land, my house, all of the things I own, certainly, why go ahead, take it. They're not going to say that. They're going to fight you every step of the way. They're going to stand firm. The walls of Jericho will stand there guarded by the people who live in Jericho until God brings the walls down. So they will face battle someday, just not today. They're not ready for it. And so he's leading them away. Now, where is he leading them to? Well, into a battle with the Egyptians who are soon to be hot on their heels. But he didn't tell them that. They're coming because God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and they're going to chase and pursue. But they're not going to fight that battle, not at all. They'll fight the Philistines later. But God says, no, there's a shorter way to get to the promised land. It's true. But that's not what we're trying to do right now. We're not looking for the shortest way. We're not looking for the easiest way. Now, if you were running your life, wouldn't you be looking for the shortest way and the easiest way? And who knows what untold miseries would come to you if you were really granted permission by God for one year to just run your life, free from any input from him, just God, just let me do it myself. No, I don't want that. We don't know what's coming, but God has already assessed everything. And he says, we're not going the shortest way. We're going to go down this way, the longer and more difficult way through the desert. Now, God's concern here is that Israel will immediately lose heart and flee. And this teaches me something interesting. There's a dynamic here of outside or external persuasion, circumstantial persuasion, and internal work through the Spirit, I think. Okay? He could make them go and make them do everything he wants, but he is actually using external circumstances to persuade them, or in this case, protecting them from external circumstances they can't handle. And so he's watching out for them. And he tailors the course that they would take to fit their own needs and their own weaknesses. His wisdom is focusing on Israel's weakness, on their frailty. He is mindful of us. He knows that we are but dust. 
Isn't that encouraging? And therefore, he's not going to lead you through a way you can't handle. He's not going to bring you through trials that you can't handle. And when you begin to murmur and complain, saying, I think you have led me through a trial I can't handle, you're wrong. Because God has ordained that you go through it, and therefore he says, you are ready for this. Rely on me. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. <clears throat> now, in the right time, God is going to prepare Israel for battle. They're going to fight Sihon, king of the Amorites. They're going to fight Og, king of Bashan, before they ever get to the Jordan River. And little by little, they're going to see God do mighty things. Psalm 144, verse 1, David said, Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So he's going to train them. He's going to get them ready. But he's not going to bring any battle to them before their time, before they're ready. And so Christ dealt with his disciples the night he was arrested, as we've mentioned many times before. When they came to arrest Jesus, he asked, Who is it you want? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I have told you that I am. If you're looking for me, then let these go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost any of those whom you have given me. He's not going to lose you if you're one of his disciples. He will never lose you. And why? Because he's going to filter the tests that come your way so that you don't lose your faith. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that nothing can come to you except by his sovereign wisdom and plan? Do you realize the big plan Satan has for you? And he is frustrated again and again. You get a glimpse of that frustration in the book of Job. I can't get at him, God. You put a hedge around him. You're right, I did. And I've been protecting him all these years from your vicious, murderous intent. And I will continue to protect him according to my wisdom. But now I'm going to let an opening in and you can come and take all of his possessions. But don't lay a hand on the man himself. You see, God filters out the temptations and the trials. And so he did for his disciples that night. And by the way, later, Peter would be ready to die. Not, just not that night. You know, in John 21, I tell you the truth, Jesus said to Peter, picking up Mac from the rest of that chapter. Is that your favorite chapter, Mac? Okay. Well, we'll continue from your favorite chapter on. So it said, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Oh, isn't that encouraging? That night he wasn't ready. He proved it before the rooster crowed by denying his Lord three times. He proved it. But later on, he wouldn't just die. He would die in such a way as to glorify God. He'd be ready at that point. Just not that night. And so Jesus carved out a safety net for Peter and all the other disciples so that they could run away, which is what they needed to do that night. And even when Peter failed to run away, he still, Christ still protected him from his own self. And so we are protected. God is very wise in how he deals with us. Now in verse 19, we see the commitment to Joseph fulfilled. Moses took, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. <clears throat> because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Now, this is a very interesting moment in the history of Genesis. You remember at the end of Genesis 50, Joseph said this to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry up my bones from this place. 
So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. That's how the book of Genesis ends. Now, it's very interesting to me. The request itself, I think, evidence of Joseph's strong faith, faith in the promise that God had made to Abraham, his ancestor. He said, God will bring you out of this place. I've heard about Genesis 15. It wasn't Genesis 15 at that point, just the story. But it was there, and God had said, Know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, where they'll be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they'll come out of that, that country and worship me in this place, promised land. So Joseph said, when that happens, take my bones out. I don't want to stay here. I want to be in the promised land. Bury me in the promised land. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 22, Hebrews 11:22 says, By faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. We've been studying on Thursdays uh, the book of Hebrews and Hebrews 11. There's a series of vignettes. By faith Isaac, when he was about to die, blessed his sons and spoke about the future. By faith Jacob, when he was about to die, worshipped on his staff and blessed each of uh, Joseph's sons. And by faith, Joseph, when he was about to die, said, take my bones. Why the dying vignettes? Well, it fits into what the author in Hebrews 11 is doing. God hadn't given them the promise yet. And the promised land wasn't the final promise. It's just something God was working out in history. The real promise is eternity. It's heaven. It's the final promised land. And so none of these forefathers received the actual promised land. Joseph never, never lived there in the promised land. He didn't own any land there, but he said, bring my bones up anyway, because God is working something out, a plan in history. And so you can imagine, I don't know who watched those bones all those hundred years, was passed on from generation to generation. Father told son about, about Joseph and his great life. And here is his embalmed body. And if God comes to uh, your aid during your lifetime, if it's during your generation that God sends the deliverance, then remember to bring Joseph's body. Well, then that one would grow old and would die in slavery. But before he would die, he'd pass on the same story to his son. And there somebody had uh, caretaking of Joseph's body. And so it went on generation after generation until finally Moses came. And the time came for Moses to bring Joseph's body out. It also shows, I think, the significance of burial. It matters. And so they wanted, he wanted his bones buried in the promised land. Now finally we get to the constant leadership of the Lord, verses 20 through 22. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Now here we have <clears throat> visibly a clear demonstration of God's constant leadership of his people. A clear visible demonstration in this pillar. And it was just one thing, but it just looked different at day or night. And it was fit for their needs. As they're wandering through the desert, the thing you're looking for is shadow, shade protection from the beating sun. At night, if you're going to travel at night, you need light. And so it would give them what they needed, both by day and by night. Now, here we have a clear principle of guidance, step by step, for the people. Turn, if you would, in, uh, for a moment, to Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9. 
In Numbers 9, verses 15 through 23, we have an account of the way it worked with the pillar and how they would follow the Lord's leadership by day or night. Now, in Numbers 5, verse 15, beginning there, on the day the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted up from the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp. And then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening to morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in the camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in, in accordance with his command through Moses. That's very clear, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's almost pedantically clear. We get it. If the, if, the, if the cloud doesn't move, we don't move. But if the cloud moves, we move. When the cloud lifts and goes, we're ready to go. But if it stays, we stay. So what does it teach you to do? Look to the cloud, right? You're going to look to the cloud. And the cloud represents God. And so you're looking to God for guidance. Where are you not looking? You're looking up at this, this amazing cloud. You're not looking down inward at yourself anymore. Not looking inward for your guidance and your wisdom. You're saying, God, lead me. Lead me in the way to go. Show me the path. Look also at Deuteronomy chapter 8. <clears throat> verses 1 through 5. Very, very important verses. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Now listen. This is Deuteronomy 8.2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So there's many aspects of this, but let's focus on the leadership and guidance. God was disciplining Israel and teaching them to not move except at his command. Don't set out except what he says. And he disciplined them also in terms of their eating. You will eat what and when I provide for you. And so the perfect embodiment of this submissive, yielded posture 
to God Almighty is Jesus Christ himself, who for 40 days was in the desert and did not eat anything, even when tempted by the devil, except at the Lord's command. The devil said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I don't eat, in effect, Jesus is saying, I don't eat until God says so. And when he says, I'll eat, then I'll eat. And the command has not been given yet. So I'll go hungry another day if he says so. And so it went through day 20, through day 30, through day 35, 36, 37, waiting on the Lord, waiting on his father. And when the father said to the son, now you may eat, he provided the angels, the angels ministered to Jesus' body, and he ate. How unlike us is that? We take what we want when we want, and we don't humbly follow the leadership of the Lord. And so this pillar, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, is a humbling for us, isn't it, and teaches us that we should look up out of ourselves to God for wisdom and guidance in the way. Now, I know many of you are facing trials in your life, challenges, don't know where to turn, what you're going to be doing even a year or five years from now, where you're going to be living. I think that the answers are here in the text for you. God does not lead you by a way he doesn't know. He leads you by a way you don't know. And he does that to humble you and test you so that you'll learn to look to him for everything. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.